Talk Zone presents Two Guys and a Mic, your mid-morning break sports talk show. It's a passionate yet lighthearted look at the world of sports, featuring the coach, John Cohn, and the big dog, Joel Radwanski. They'll recap the games from yesterday, look ahead to the matchups tonight, and cover a lot more in between. Now, Two Guys and a Mic on TalkZone.com. Welcome in, everybody, to Two Guys and a Mic. This is Joel Redwanski, the coach. John Cohn, not here today, so it's just going to be me. It's one and a half guys and a mic because I'm here with David Olson, the producer, who's always here with us. And we've got plenty of great stuff to talk about on these airways. is the phone number. Dial it up. we got a lot of good stuff to talk to, a lot of cool people to talk to as well today. Welcome in, everybody. Thanks, Dave Olson, for getting this show rolling. This is our February 1st edition, and it's starting to get a little bit colder out there. Not as beautiful as it was yesterday. But you know what? I can still deal with it on February 1st. Oh, February 1st, if you're a, a college football fan, you know that is that it's National Signing Day. We're going to get into that a little bit later. Uh, but first, you know, I, I try to stay ahead of stories. You know, I, I try to – I'm always searching for interesting stories to relate to you, the listener, and I'm going to do that again here today. Uh, but I was shocked that I missed this one. I didn't find out until five minutes ago that Don Cornelius, the creator – Host, executive producer of Soul Train, uh, died of an apparent suicide last night. And, and I was obviously right then the last to know about that one. But, uh, the, you know, to me, that's extremely sad because in some weird way, you know, back then we only had, uh, uh, regular cable. I mean, we didn't have cable. So Channel 9 was pretty big back in the day. So my only, how can I say, like my only, uh, shows that I got to like see African Americans in was Soul Train. Because back then, I didn't like anything on any other channel, so the only channel I watched as like a 5- to 10-year-old was was WGN, because it had, you know, Bozo Buckets on, and then eventually I graduated to to watching Cub games. And I remember there was a lot of games on Saturday, immediately right after the Cub game, they would do the 10th inning show, and next, you know, went right into Soul Train. And I wasn't going to change the channel, I was too gopped up on sugar at the time, so I was all lazy. I mean, like, when, when Soul Train started... I watched all those shows, so it, you know it's kind of funny. It's like nowadays, I kind of like my friends and I get into it. They're like, "Oh, you must not like black people because you don't listen to hip hop." Like, That's not true because I got Stevie Wonder and a bunch of funk all in my in my players. Just that I really don't like hip hop that much. So uh, it's pretty sad. Like an apparent suicide. So that's uh, you're the one who let me know. That's pretty sad. That uh, a guy that had was such an innovator and did so much would get to the point where he didn't want to live anymore. Dave. Well, he's had a rough couple of years. Uh-huh. Uh, he was he was involved in like a battery case against his ex-wife, uh, and he was like on probation, and it, 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 there was divorce, and so he was going through a real, real tough time. Yeah, I could imagine. I mean, and if well, you don't ever want to be hitting anybody. Who knows if that, like what happened with that? But you go through a divorce that can really, really uh, bring you down. And I guess he was trying to get like a a biographical. 
movie about Soul Train made, and yeah, I guess yeah, yeah, they've been trying to get it off the ground for a couple years now. You know what the sad thing is? He died, so now they're gonna. Oh yeah, yeah. They'll uh, make uh, it immediately. Yep. yep. When, when you could have had some unbelievable revelations in this movie that he could have told some great stories, but instead, you know, we'll miss out on that because everyone's going to be like, "Wow, Don Cornelius is gone." I really, I'm going to miss everything that he did. Very similar to Ron Santo, if you think about it. He passed away, and all of a sudden, the veteran committee is like, "Wow, you know, he played 14 years in major leagues while he was injecting himself with, well, because he had diabetes." You know, let's put him in the Hall of Fame. Now it's too bad he couldn't have, uh, you know. Had that feeling when he was well, alive. Well, yeah, I mean, but I, on the other side of things, if he didn't die, there's the argument that he wouldn't have been in the Hall of Fame. So the only reason Ron Santo is in the Hall of Fame is because of his death, is what you're saying. Yep. Yep. Are you are you a jaded White Sox fan, upset that I no, dress no, up as a no, superhero no, on the weekends? I, I'm a realist. I'm a realist. If he if he was going to make the Hall of Fame, he would have been in the Hall of Fame already. And the only reason there was such a question of why he wasn't in the Hall of Fame because he was on the broadcast campaign for it every single year. You know, this is true. He need he should have quit all that. Okay, I, I, that's an interesting opinion. You're probably right about it. Just like Don Cornelius was never going to get a Soul Train movie out unless he put up all the money for it and he made it, or he passed away. So now we're at you know Don Cornelius is not here. So uh, suicide. I, I don't get that. And I just want to let everybody know out there, I've told this. One of my buddies said this to me, and I'm like, you know, this is so true, absolutely so true. If one day somebody's like, you know, Joel Redwanski died of an apparent suicide, I don't care how bad it may have been because I've already been through the lowest, I think, so far that I can get besides, you know, uh, losing my mom at this point. There's, there's no way I did it. Investigate, I was murdered. I didn't. I would never commit suicide no matter what happened to me. I don't care if... I, I had no limbs after anything. I would fight on and live. That's all I'm saying. Just just throwing that out there. Does, uh, one of my buddies said to me, and I actually totally agreed with that. So Now, we are going to talk some sports today. we got the funny stories to get into that we're going to uh, get in a little later. But I, I will start out with just a, a little touch and base around uh, the sporting world. Uh, my beloved uh, Fighting Illini yesterday won an offensive epic battle yesterday against Michigan State, 42-41. to 41. Now, you know, I wouldn't mind, you know, we normally with Coach Iron, we talk a, a lot of basketball and stuff, and normally when I'm on here by, by myself, I don't dwell on it, but something I want to bring up on this game, obviously 42-41 to 41, beating Michigan State at home isn't an offensive epic battle. But both of these teams shot below 33%, made less than one out of every three shots. Uh, Illinois shot 32 point whatever, and Michigan State shot 24%. But after the game, the players and coaches were complaining that there was too much air in the ball. This is no joke. And Brandon Paul was like, I know this sounds like I'm an excuse. This is an excuse. I'm not making an excuse. There was too much air in that basketball. You know, I think I'm going to have to believe him when two teams, uh, say that. And some of those shots that the ball was flying out of there was, it was, uh, pretty funny when I, when I saw some of the highlights this morning on, uh, on ESPN.com. So an issue with too much air in a basketball, I honestly have never heard of about a, a situation where a coach has complained about a ball. And the referees never stopped it and checked on it, supposedly. They were like, no, just play. They quit complaining. Don't you think if both coaches are like, hey, check the ball, they should take, you know, they'll stop it to see if a guy got a shot off at point sec, you know, point one seconds. Well, yeah, and I'm sure they have more than one basketball there at the arena. It's not like, you know, you're out playing in the sandlot up, hit the ball over the fence, game over. You know, it's not that thing. How, how hard is it to switch the ball? At a Big Ten school at Illinois with the Big Ten network? 
They make about they that school. Let me see that they, they get sixteen thousand a basketball game. Those tickets are probably about an average of uh, forty dollars a piece. They're making over a half a million dollars a basketball game. They could probably have checked to see if they can find another ball that Nike already has given them a hundred of them every, like every single season. So just thought that was awful strange that you actually hear a team complaining about too much air at a basketball. Uh, so uh, the Bulls are off yesterday. They're going to get started back up here now. There was a couple uh, cool interviews done this past week, and they're revealing, you know, right around Super Bowl time, the, t- the players that aren't playing in the Super Bowl, they try to get a little bit of attention because uh, obviously they weren't on a team good enough to uh, to be in it. Uh, but some really cool interviews that happened this week. Hannah Storm, who uh, I'm a big fan of, you know, she's just not a, a, a pretty girl to look at. She's like in her early 50s. She looks like she's 35. I don't know how she does it, but she is an excellent interviewer. Now, she was interviewing Endomic and Sue. On these airways before Endomic and Sue was drafted uh, by the Detroit Lions out of Nebraska, I was saying, hey, the 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 Rams should take this guy number one over Sam Bradford. This guy's going to be a dynamic player, change the way the game is played. Well, he is that way. He is a dynamic player, and he, he is changing the way the game is played. But this dude is an absolute uh, – he's crazy. And at first I thought he was, uh, you know, crazy smart, but now I'm reasonable. He's saying so many stupid things recently. This guy is one of, he is, he's going to end up doing something in his life. He's going to end up being Mike Tyson. He's Mike Tyson with an education, Dave Olson. That's the only way I can describe in Dynamic and Sue. Are we going to be looking at another Alonzo Spellman incident up in Detroit? No, you know what? See, he's a little different crazy. Alonzo Spellman was not aware of reality in terms of, like, really not aware of reality, like, walk around in space. And Dominic and Sue can fit in everywhere, but he has built himself up into this creation of I am the biggest beast and, like, godlike thing that he figures he can get away with anything. Crashing cars, girls hitting her head, being like, oh, I have a cush, i got to go to the hospital. No, I'm not taking you to the hospital because this could end up getting me in trouble with the NFL, but I might be hurt really bad. Too bad. Kicks her out of the car. Stuff like that. Well, in an interview with Hannah Storm, I start reading all the stuff that he said, and I'm like, oh my goodness, is he finally coming around? He actually admits, you know what, uh, you know what I what I did was wrong. I shouldn't uh, I shouldn't have done that to the guy. I'm like, oh wow, he finally admitted it, right? Well, as the interview goes on, he tells Anna Storm, well, I was just trying to get up, I wasn't trying to step on him. This guy is absolutely delusional. So I'm going to throw a little prediction out there. And this is a guy I, I honestly don't like him anymore because he plays for the Detroit Lions. So if you play for the Lions, Vikings, Packers, you are, you're automatically, you know, on the bottom of the barrel, uh, you know, according to me. But there is going to be some crazy thing. So uh, how do you keep a guy like that in check? I mean, what are the Lions going to do to this guy? You have to say to him, listen, you're messing up. Whatever, they, they're, they're afraid to tell him, oh, you're messing up, you're doing something wrong. They keep on saying, oh, it's all right. Act crazy, act a fool, which, you know, that's, it's okay. You got to keep it between the lines. You can't be getting in car accidents, telling people not to go to the hospital, stepping on people saying, oh, I was wrong, and then later saying in the same sentence, basically saying, oh, I wasn't doing it on purpose, even though you just admitted that you were wrong. And Dominic and Sue, you're a little crazy. Now, there's got to be a way to look into his mind. What is this guy thinking? Do you know what I'm saving, uh, saying, David? It's because sometimes people are thinking one thing and they say another. Well, believe it or not, scientists are figuring out a way 
to actually read your mind. This isn't something that, you know, is futuristic. They're doing it right now. Uh, the University of California at Berkeley, a professor by the name of Robert Knight is, uh, is heading up this, this research that's been going on. And, and what they're doing is they're actually taking pictures of your mind through, let me get this, uh, the exact stuff, but they're, it's basically through, uh, electromagnetic, uh, imaging and they look at your brain and they're able to take pictures of your brain when you're thinking of certain words. Now they actually told all these different, uh, test people to, like, have a conversation. And while they're having this conversation, they're thinking of the words. Now, these these uh, they're taking the images of your brain as you're thinking of these words. And after they did a, a, enough tests with these people, they were able to later have them think, and they were taking pictures of their brains. And when the later when the the testers, the researchers were were you saying this word at the time? They were right ninety percent of the time. So I don't know if they can just go up to you right now and have you read your mind, or they would actually have to have get your reading patterns, figure out what you say, and then they'd be able to read your mind. But the point is, they can. They were right ninety percent of the words that that these people were speaking. They were originally doing this not for any big conspiracy, you know. Oh, we're gonna uh, try to turn this into some espionage thing. They were trying to help. Um, uh, epileptic, uh, epileptic patients and, and a few other different people that had uh, different type of seizure type situations. Well, it's starting to work out for them. Now, um, a neuroscientist from Oxford is like, you know, we're going to get to the point where we will be able to, uh, if we get enough test subjects, figure out the typical patterns of someone the way they think, and we will be able to just be able to take and uh, and it could be portable. You can have one of these things out, take a picture of somebody's brain, and as long as they were putting their thoughts into like cognitive words because some people can think without, I guess, using uh, an actual uh, what do you call it? an actual sentence or whatever. But I don't know if that's completely true because there was debate on this, and you can go to the Telegraph. They're the ones that were talking about this. Some really interesting stuff because I, I remember when I was learning how to speak Spanish. When I was doing it a lot, I would sometimes accidentally think in Spanish. So I really do think you, when whenever you're thinking, you put those words into thought. So. There's this whole future being able to read minds is right around the corner. So stuff that I would I would have thought, yeah, we'll be able to do that within the next uh, like 100 years or 200 years. Who knows? Maybe it's right around the corner. Now, I went to McMurray College. Uh, I'm going to sit there and pat myself on the back a little bit. We're going to have a guy on the show later named uh, Malik Ben Musa. And he was he's two years older than me. And he went through the same education that I went through at McMurray. And it was a phenomenal education. We actually went through a, a, a course called an ideas course. Basically, the great ideas that have trans, uh, transformed civilization throughout uh, throughout civilization, basically. And it starts about you know about 5,200 years ago. And we actually, during our freshman year, go through a class just to prepare how to write papers for this class and how to write papers uh, throughout the rest of your life. Now, I don't know how well that's done because obviously my speaking isn't all that great right now. But during this during these courses. There was a guy that I, I learned, or I read about, a guy by the name of Lucretius. And he was a philosopher, an Italian philosopher, born in 99 BC, died in 55 BC, lived for 44 years. And when he was alive, he wrote seven rules of the universe, seven laws of nature. Okay, and I, hopefully I'm not born to death. I'll get to the point really quick. But one of the first things he said was that everything is made out of atoms. That seems pretty 
simple right now. But people thought he was crazy. As a matter of fact, the Catholic Church basically said, if anybody reads Lucretius, you're the excommunicated and you'll burn in hell. Well, it ends up 1,800 years later after he wrote this, it's proven that everything is made out of atoms. Well, he has seven rules of the universe, and these rules are been proven the first one, second one, third one. I'll actually bring in all these rules. This just came to my head when I thought about these imaging things. One of the rules that has not been proven yet is that all of your thoughts are actual substance. So right now when you're thinking, what the heck is Big Dog talking about? What's he on the pulpit for? That's a chemical reaction going on in your brain. Your thoughts you can actually touch. So that's why you can, when you were in college and you would sit there and you would write a paper and not move for four hours, and you would think, wow, I didn't even get up, and you would get up and you're completely exhausted. Your brain was putting on chemical reactions, so you're actually creating, using energy. It's not burning any fat for you, sorry to say, but you are. You are actually using energy. So what ends up happening is, what he, what Lucretius was trying to say was, your Thoughts, whatever you're thinking, is actual tangible substance. That's why you have an image, a memory, burnt onto your brain. Well, if this is true that you can actually look at someone's brain and see the word in a certain part of their brain coming up in a certain pattern, maybe it's, maybe Lucretius was right that all these things, these chemical reactions in your brains actually are a substance. Like the second rule they had is, you cannot create something out of nothing. That seems pretty simple, but back then people like would think magic. Oh, you know, a wizard waved his sword and something was created. Well, either you know you can break molecules apart or put them together. All this stuff is eventually coming true. The next one on his list is your thoughts are actual substance. So I just thought you might want to read this. Some pretty interesting stuff. But if you read this stuff 500 years ago and someone in the Catholic Church find out about it, you probably would have been burned at the stake. But that's another story whatsoever. We've definitely moved on. So I go from Endemic and Sue trying to read his mind to, to Lucretius. And, you know, the sad thing is, is Endemic and Sue could probably talk tell you all about Lucretius right now. He's he's a pretty smart individual. I guess he was like straight A's while he's at the University of Nebraska. So this guy that is not smart enough to realize that we know he's lying when he said he didn't actually step on the guy and he's telling women to get out of his car that he just got in a car accident with. He's smart enough to get straight A's at the University of Nebraska. So I don't know if that's an indictment of Endemic and Sue or if it's an indictment of the University of Nebraska. But I do know this, and Dominican Sue has donated over $2 million to that university so far. So some of these stories is absolutely strange. Now, uh, as we move on to some other stuff, uh, sticking with football, today is National Signing Day. February 1st, one of the most overrated days in the history of football, but there's been this glorification of kids that have not done anything in high school to all of a sudden get a pat on the back and have everybody tell them that they're the next great thing. Some of these stories are actually pretty cool. You know, uh, kids that maybe would never get a chance to go to college, they've worked their butts off, they get a four-year education, who knows what they can do that to. And some of these stories are maybe the next great NFL players that three years from now will be drafted in the NFL as they as they leave as a junior. Uh, but one story, just uh, like the fall from grace, uh, a kid that uh, pretty much had everything and let it go through his fingers. A kid by the name of Roger Lewis. He went to Pickering High School out in Ohio. He was one of the top wide receivers, the the number two wide receiver overall coming into this particular year. Uh, Ohio State was going to give him a scholarship. You're getting a scholarship from Ohio State, and you're from Ohio. You're awesome. One of the top wide receivers in the country. It's the simplest fact, even before your senior year. Well, Well, it turns out that this is one of those kids that had things handed to him his whole life. Basically, oh, you're not very good in school. Don't worry, we'll pass you. 
Well, he all of a sudden becomes academically, uh, he didn't qualify academically, so Ohio State pulls a scholarship. In the meantime, ends up getting a bunch of trouble, and he was just charged yesterday uh, for first-degree rape, and he's going to be tried as an adult. And this is a kid that had everything going for him in his whole life. When they, There was a pattern of, oh, it's okay, let's push you along, it's okay, push you along. So if you're one of those kids that are like, oh, I know he's had, if you're in a coach or an adult that's like, you know what, this kid's had a pretty rough life, and maybe if we just let him coast by, he'll be able to, you know, go to go to college. Doesn't matter if you go to college, you haven't get education, you won't know how to do anything while you're there. And next thing you know, this, these kids that end up like this, they end up thinking everything's going to get handed to them. And now you have other victims along the way. So the people that have pushed this kid along, you're partly to blame for, uh, this kid, uh, committing heinous crimes like a, a rape. So hopefully there's not too many more Roger Lewis stories on this. So, uh, just, you know, keep a, a perspective of this National Signing Day, because I, I remember years on, on on National Signing Day for college football, where people were like, "Wow, Ron Zook got the number eight class! Can you believe this? Illinois is on the roll." Well, and guess what? These kids never do anything. And I've also remember years where, if you look at uh, this particular senior class for Illinois, all the talent that has come out, and there's a bunch of players that are going to be drafted over the last two years, not just this year, but the year before. And in those draft classes, oh, Illinois is like the 50th ranked draft class. I guess Zook can't, uh, can't recruit anymore. And these kids end up being pretty good. So w- when you hear about, oh, this guy left LSU and now he's going to Alabama because of the national championship game. And now Alabama has a better, uh, uh, draft day or uh, a signing class. Don't believe any of that. Don't believe any of that. But supposedly this year, even though I just said that, you know, you don't believe any of this hype. The Alabama recruiting class this year is supposedly like the greatest recruiting class that anybody's had since Texas had like the, the 2001 recruiting class, which ended up, you know, Vince Young and, and about eight other players that played in the NFL and they won a national championship. So, um, as I say that, you know, there is a little truth to that, but don't believe all the hype. And, and this is the overmost hype day because now you have, you have coaches that will get extensions because they had like, they signed, you know, three, five stars and eight, four stars. And because of that, you know, like the, the AD is going to be like, Oh, you did a good job and you made our college look good. So we're going to give you an extension and look at, don't pay attention in about, in about a month, it's going to happen. Some college football coach is going to get an extension just because he signed a bunch of 17 and 18 year olds that, uh, as, uh, in the immortal words of Jeff Van Note, center for the Atlanta Falcons had a bunch of potential, which means it's a French word. That means you ain't worth a damn yet. So. Okay, National Signing Day. So, and, and the, I guess another reason why I'm poo-pooing, uh, the importance of National Signing Day is the simple fact that, uh, Illinois has had a very, very poor recruiting year. Because, uh, Travis, or Tim Beckham. So maybe that's another reason why I've decided to, uh, you know, to poo-poo that idea. Now, um, there's something I want to bring up, and, uh, I'm going to actually talk to Malik Ben Musa when he comes back up on this. And I am going to turn the, turn the wheel a little bit and start bringing up something about uh, the political agenda uh, of the country, Iran. Now, uh, Iran's president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who is, by the way, an extremely handsome man. I have, I have noticed that when he actually trims that beard up and wears one of those uh, $15,000 suits, he's not bad looking. When you get past the, the fact that uh, he's heinous and doesn't really uh, believe in everybody having the, the right to believe in what they want to believe in. Well, this guy is taking a page out of many other dictators' books, but this one is going to the next step. Now, this guy wants a better opinion of himself worldwide. Now, he realizes that in Europe and in the United States, this is never going to happen. 
But what can end up, what he has decided to do is he has started a 24-hour Spanish-speaking uh, television station that will be uh, uh, blasted out in Cuba and South America. And the, the reason for this is just to have more pro-Iranian-type television out there. Now, this is... Uh, this is one of the smartest things I've ever heard somebody do or one of the most asinine because I don't know how many television options they have, but if I'm in South America, I don't want like a, a, a subtitle or dubbed Iranian movie in Spanish because I, I really don't trust the, 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 the movie quality or the movie making abilities of the people in Iran, to be quite honest with you, to actually make me interested in this. Now, can you, David, can you think of any other like a dictator that tried to do something like this. I understand they do it in their own country. Hey, let's have our own, you know, like, uh, like, I don't know, like a centralized television, uh, channels broadcast that they do it in China. They do it in Russia. They do it in England. Okay. They do, you know, it's, but a country actually having like a pro Iranian channel to blast out, to blast out to a whole Spanish speaking continent. No, I, I think this is uh new and I, no, I've never heard of anything like this before. Yeah, and, and I'm actually extremely interested to see what they're putting out there. You know, is it going to be like negative stuff against uh, Jews? You know what I mean? Is it going to be like, I mean, they're going big time into Venezuela and all these countries because they really want to blast the United States and Europe, and they want Iran and South America to become. Uh, okay, now I say all this, folks, and many times on the on these airwaves, I've been accused of being a. Uh, you know, a tree-hugging hippie and all that other stuff, we can no longer be dependent on oil. There has got to be other ways to, to power America. We, there has to be a transition from oil to other types of power, especially when you consider what happens if the Middle East and South America all of a sudden, hey, you know what, you're right. There's way too much power in, in, in the West, in Europe and North America. Things are going to change awful quick, and then all of a sudden, those electric cars everybody hates are going to be selling off the hook in a hurry. So just just something to think about. Uh, 888-463-6748 is the phone number. And to, uh, if anybody can come up with a crazier thing or like a more propagandized thing that a, a country has ever done than that, you got to give it to me because I can't imagine anything like that. Now, we all know what Hitler did in the 36 Olympics and all that, and we... You know, that's kind of, you get the Olympics. Hitler wasn't the only, uh, he was the first, but it, it wasn't the only country to ever do that. That's kind of like typical. Kind of like how China in the 2008 Olympics went overboard to fake the whole opening ceremonies to have everybody think that they, they were the most technological savvy country in the world. And at the time I was absolutely blown away. I'm calling up my brother. Do you see what they're doing at the, at the opening ceremonies of the Olympics to find out it was all faked? And then I was I was like disgusted by it. I'm like, oh, the, the, they faked it. So I mean, that's a little different. I mean, obviously, doing stuff to propagandize at the Olympics is one thing, but a whole television network. I, I, are they going to have like uh, like Miss Iran contest? I guess they would have like uh, uh, things to do in the sand. There's got to be there's got to be like, they got to have a version of the Gong Show on the Iranian network. And they have some pretty cool, I know they have pretty cool gongs over in the Middle East, so that could be good. There's, there's got, I don't know who wants to be a millionaire. That, that could be absolutely excellent. You know, instead of actually winning money though, that you risk limbs. You get a question wrong, 
your lifeline is like your hand. I'll risk my hand on this one. If you get it wrong, you still go on, but you're missing a hand. I mean, there could be definitely many options for uh, television shows on an Iranian-based network. So we are going to take a real quick break. 888-463-6748. And we'll be back shortly with our guy, Malik Ben Musa. Here on Two Guys and a Mic. Two Guys and a Mic brought to you by MyMVPs.com. Check it out. Go get yourself a free profile. Absolutely fabulous. You can share, connect, play, everything. Uh, you, get, you get a highlight hitting a home run in a softball game. Download it. What, let your cousin down in uh, Florida check it out. 888-463-6748 is the phone number to Two Guys and a Mic. This is Joel Radwanski doing the show solo today. The coach will be back shortly. Matter of fact, he should be back on Friday. He's still at home in the straight jacket as he goes through stuff. Now, we have other funny stories to talk about later on in the program. Uh, one is about flash mobs, robbing stores. There's a couple of those stories that happened recently. And another one is the House is set to try to pass a bill to ban the ability of people on welfare to draw cash out at uh, ATMs that are in casinos, strip clubs, and liquor stores. We're going to get into that later. But before we get into all that, we're going to talk to our guy, Malik Ben Musa. Malik, it's really good to talk to you. What's up, buddy? How you doing? Not much. What's up, Joel? How are you? Uh, uh, doing extremely well. Now, you know, we have guests on the show a lot, but this is a guest that it's, you know, you're doing a lot, Malik, but it's, you know, you're a buddy of mine. You, you were a, a good friend of mine back at McMurray College. And uh, it's been a long time since we talked. So it's just, honestly, just because normally, you know, we do these interviews and, you know, I'm not friends with the guy. I just wanted a disclosure out there. That you know stories about me that, quite frankly, <laughs> should not be going on air. No, and you know stories about me that shouldn't be going on air either. But I will tell them about you, so because I have the ability to to knock you off air, so that won't be a problem. Before we yeah. get into more serious stuff, because uh, you do have a, a real important and really uh, cool uh, a web page called Libyan Hearts on on Facebook. Before we get into that. Uh, uh, now you're. Uh, how are you involved in in professional soccer right now? Because I know when you were at McMurray, where all American soccer player at one of the best Division three soccer programs in America, McMurray College, you end up playing professional soccer. Uh, tell me about your whole professional soccer career before we get on here. Well, uh, after I graduated from Mac, I went on to uh, play. You graduated for a year. 
You graduated? Yeah, I graduated. Okay. <laughs> actually, I graduated uh, early, actually. Um, in my last semester, I was just doing uh, student teaching, just kind of watching uh, teachers teach and taking notes and got an A for doing nothing besides sitting on my butt and doing nothing, basically. So We spent a lot of time that semester together, I do believe. Yeah, I believe mm-hmm. so. I believe we had some uh, fun that time, at that time. So, But uh, after I graduated, I went on to Italy for a year and played uh, in a small town called Ravenna, which is in the northeastern part of uh, Italy, um, under... Uh, uh, you know, I got an opportunity to play and, you know, got some tryouts with some higher level teams, but, so, uh, it just didn't work out. Uh, so that, that's like, that's like the Italian apps, like close to Venice, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually it's not too close to Venice. It's on the Adriatic Sea. It's okay. about 20, 20, 20, 30 kilometers from the Adriatic Sea. But, okay. you know, I got my opportunity to play and, um, I think my first game out, uh, uh, two days after I walked on to, uh, I got to Italy actually, um, I got the opportunity to play in the game and got, um, MVP, uh, for the game, uh, I got the winning assist. So, you know, it went real well. Um, I got opportunities to go on to try out at different levels, um, but it just it just wasn't going to happen. Uh, a lot of the players I knew from my past, because uh-huh. I'd gone there before high school um, and met a lot of people, and the players that were there that I knew just were struggling to play and be able, you know, at, at, the, at those levels that I was playing at, you know, you had to kind of work and work play at the same time. So, it was just a struggle, and, and they had degrees, and they were Italian citizens, uh-huh. and they couldn't get jobs. So I decided to come back to the U.S. and got my opportunity to play in Cincinnati uh, the year before the MLS was um, formed mm-hmm. um, in the USISL League and played for the Cheetahs um, with um, a bunch of really great players. Uh-huh. I got to play against McBride, McBride and some of the other best players uh, that came up in the national team. But, uh, you know, at that point, I just felt like, uh, you know, I talked to my old coach, Coach K from Mac, and some of the other top coaches in Ohio and different places. Um, yeah, and Coach uh, K, uh, Coach, Coach K, by the way, is Coach Killen, one of the finest Division three coaches in any sport. That, that guy, oh, yeah. I love that guy. I, he wasn't even my coach, yet I call him Coach, without question. Yeah, yep. yeah and he's, he's, he's an old-timer, and I think he's one of the four, you know, first four people to get their top licensing in, in the United States. He's been around for... 50 plus years mm-hmm. and you know he i just told him you know don't sugarcoat his coach tell me what i need to do and he told me you know you know you could keep working at it but it, you're probably an inch too short and a step too slow to make it at the top level and i was like okay then i'll just stick to my coaching the um abilities and you know started coaching and got my opportunities to coach at the collegiate level for about five years at different levels be a grad assist assistant and uh, at a, as a head coach here in austin and, and uh, you know, just continue coaching at the club level and the collegiate level, and you know, got my chance to coach semi-pro level here in Austin as well for mm-hmm. a year. And you know, I've just been coaching for you know probably 23 years since I've been 17 on and off. So um, I'm, I'm real fortunate and blessed to be able to do this and develop young people, both on the boys and girls side, and, and men and women as well on the collegiate level. So yeah, to, to the listeners here, that you know, some of them might think to themselves, you know, oh, that's. Uh, kind of sad. You get your old college coach telling you, you know, maybe, maybe it's time for you to, to start coaching. But you know what? You have something that I don't have. I don't know if I could have played indoor arena league and played being the fullback linebacker guy. You capped out and you got to play professional soccer. No matter what anybody said, you got to play overseas. You got to play in the United States and you know that you capped out your ability, which is all that you really need to do in life. Let, let, if people capped out their ability all the time in life, there's nothing to be ashamed of, and you should be happy with that, Malik. So that's uh, that's pretty cool, buddy. Yeah, I'm, I was pretty happy where I was, and uh, you know, I just wanted to know what it was going to take. And, you know, it, you know, the coaches that I trusted, and they're all national-type, you know, high-level coaches, mm-hmm. and, and just 
told me straight out, and that's what I really wanted to hear. I didn't want to be plugging along for another three, four years in my mid to late 20s trying to struggle uh, playing at, at a certain level and knowing that probably I was never going to get that real opportunity at the highest level, which is really what I wanted. So Now, before we get into a little bit more serious stuff, I, I got two little funny things to ask you about uh, – <laughs> About about Mac Murray College, which is pretty cool. Is, you know, I tell my buddies, you know, that Olindo Mare was uh, played at Mac Murray, and he got the ink. That I believe that was his uh, yeah, transcript. Yeah, he still got the ink at NFL too. So yeah, his, <laughs> his his transcript at Mac Murray College was incomplete. Never attended a class, but he played football and so, and soccer yeah. at the same time, which is is pretty cool. Every once in a while, I tell my buddies, you know, I played football with him. No, you didn't. He didn't go to Mac Murray. Yes, he did. Okay. Yeah, he did. And he scored a game-winning goal in the first playoff game against Washington University uh, before he left for Syracuse. So. Yeah, and the guy was a phenomenal, phenomenal soccer yeah. player. And he was the best kicker we have ever had in the history of that school. But here's the other question. And feel free to say his real name. <laughs> Dave, do not, do, not blank, do not blank him. I've not worked this out with Malik beforehand. Have I asked you, if I talked to you, when was the last time I talked to you, Malik? 15 Probably years ago? 15 years ago, at least. Okay. Could you, I want you to start, by the way, are you in the Mac Murray College Hall of Fame yet? No. Okay, uh, but Pedro, Pedro is now. Oh, Pedro Martinez and deserves Joel to be. And a couple of the other guys. Actually, Pedro just got, uh, just got into the St. Louis Hall of Fame. Okay, so besides Joel Wallace, besides Pedro Martinez, can you name me, name the real names too, name me some men soccer Hall of Famers at Mac Murray College? You can say the uh, name. Well, I, I would say probably Abel Uribe is probably another one. I love Abel. Great guy. Yeah. Name another one. Yeah. And, uh, well, his nickname was Chupe, but, uh, you know, um, uh, he, he was also a really good, uh, good player, center, center mid that played for us during the time. <laughs> There's a, a bunch of guys. That okay. Okay. I'm going to, I'm, I'm, this Jeff is. Nascastro also was a really, really great player, all conference player, all I, Midwest type player. I got another one for you. Okay. He's from Africa and he was there five years before you were. Oh, I, I can't remember his name, but I know what you're talking about. You don't remember his name? No, I don't. I'm terrible with names. You tell me my locker if, number. When I say this, it, but nobody will believe me when I say this that you can't remember it. No, Rich Mafuka. Yes, I remember. He, he was also a medical student, I believe, too. Yeah, Rich Mafuka. I just love saying that name because when because his sister played at uh, another school that w Mac Murray would play. So we would just yell, stop that Mafuka! We would just yell yeah. that, and oh my goodness, are the parents from Mac Murray would come over to us, you guys gotta stop, you're acting like idiots, and we would show the game, <laughs> we would show on the, on the scorecard her name was Mafuka. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was true, it's true, it's not, there's no doubt that's his name, <laughs> I just couldn't remember it. <laughs> so, uh, sorry to twist you on that one, I leave you out on a ledger, Malik. You know, before we get into Libyan Hearts, I do have a question for you. Have you heard about the fact that I ran, and I'm a did a job as actually, starting a 24-hour pro-Iran television network that's going to be broadcast Spanish-speaking in Cuba and South America. Uh, I haven't heard it, but that doesn't surprise me at all. Now, have you ever heard of any, like, what's the most, like, craziest or most pro-propaganda thing that you've ever heard a government or, or like, a dictator doing? This, this is tr truly original. I've never heard anything like this before. Well, uh, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of things. I mean, obviously, our, in Libya, where I, I come from originally, mm -hmm. the propaganda and, and, and all that uh, hype that Gaddafi and his regime did was, you know, out of this world. So I could go on for two hours about some of the stuff that he did. Well, yeah, why don't, it doesn't surprise me. Okay, so and if you want to uh, like Libyan Hearts, go to Facebook, 
and it's Libyan hearts. Uh, like, and it gives you a lot of information about uh, what Malik and uh, is doing, and what a lot of other people in the gr- uh, in the group are doing. Malik. So that's that's really cool. Why don't you give us an example of some of the stuff that the government has done in order to to limit freedom uh, in Libya? Uh, well, you know, from basic um, from basic just construction. I mean, this is say just road work. Uh-huh. Uh, the, t- the, p- the payments that uh, people made on uh, throughout the year, you know, in regards to car taxes. We call them taxes here, but it would be a different term they would use in Libya. Uh, it was never used. Um, I've heard stories where people were so frustrated with the with the construction of potholes and road work uh, and lack of in Libya that uh, some communities actually were, were raising money to try to fix it themselves. And Gaddafi would say, no, you're not allowed to fix the roads in front of your house. You're not allowed to fix the outside of your house. Everything on the outside is mine. Inside of your house, you can do what you like. So those are the type of things that he would do. He would do all kinds of crazy things, um, from propaganda coming out, speaking out against, you know, calling himself the king of Africa, uh-huh. sending yes. money to differing African nations, calling himself the king. Um, you know, it, the list can go on and on with different things. Obviously, he had the Libyan state TV that all it did was just, you know, mm-hmm. uh, promote his agenda, promote him and his family and what they were trying to do and made him out to be the greatest person ever. Uh, almost like a prophet. The biggest thing is the Green Book, the Green Book in Libya. What's that? I'm, what not a, I'm not aware of that. What's that? <laughs> the Green Book is basically his version of the Quran, where okay. basically terms like a man is a man uh-huh. and a woman is a woman was stated in there. Things like that. I mean, just crazy okay. things. Trying to rewrite religion uh, into his own agenda to try to push down people and make them believe. You know that uh, he he was like a saint, like somebody um, like the Prophet Muhammad in in some sense. Um, but you know, obviously, most Muslims, for the most part, didn't buy into it, and of course, the Libyans didn't buy into it, and you know, went on to their, went about their business, you know, um, trying to live their lives. But it was a struggle. You know, most Libyans at that time were barely making uh, two to three hundred dollars a month. Okay. Living on a salary with a whole family of eight to nine people. Now, when so. when, when Kim Jong Il died, there were there were pictures of people mourning in the streets, like legitimately yep. looking upset. And I and I always thought to myself, that's either someone faking it or they worked for the government. Is there anybody from Libya that wasn't directly working for Gaddafi that was pro Gaddafi or all upset about him uh, no, not no, being no. in charge? The, the only the only people that were really pro Gaddafi had some legitimate business with him uh-huh. or okay. some tie in with his family. Okay, and, and there's still people there. There's people within my own family and my wife's side of the family because my wife is from Libya as well, uh-huh. um, and she has a long extended family as well um, as well as I do that have ties into the, the Gaddafi regime. There was no way around it at times for you to be able to do anything. Every mm-hmm. business. Every, from from the telecommunications to the very small business had some tie-in to one of Gaddafi's sons or his or, or, or the people that he was um, had business with, you know some some tie-in to Gaddafi where he was making money off it. There's nothing you can do in Libya without something having to go back to the Gaddafi or his regime. Okay, so, so uh, everybody around the world was so happy for for Libya. They were happy for Egypt. When uh, these dictators uh, are toppled, like the one thing you're like, just oh, it's so good that Gaddafi is out. 
how concerned you are about who takes over. You know, sometimes, you know, you've got to be careful what you wish for. You know, so you, you can get it. How worried are you that uh, democracy will reign? Or I shouldn't say, I don't know if democracy can reign. Well, democracy, democracy is a lot of flourish. You know, the democracy is in its infancy right now in Libya, and and it's when I went back this past three four weeks, um, I just got back a week and a half ago. Um, you see it forming. People are demonstrating still. People are not okay. happy about certain things that are going on. Obviously, the 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 process for democracy is not something that's going to happen overnight. But people are allowed to speak, and that was not happening before. Okay. People couldn't just say one word. If you said a word that was wrong, even on the street, he had people all over the place watching, listening. He had microphones in, in all parts of cities. So even you're, you're talking on the phone like I am to you, it was being taped, it was being monitored. So any wrong saying could cause you or your family to be in huge trouble. Hey, I'd be possibly in an, present, I'd, possibly death. I'd be in an awful lot of trouble because I, I have a very, very big mouth. I'm boisterous and usually will stand up. I'd be, I wouldn't be able to last very long. No, like I that, wouldn't but. either. That's Mm-mm. why I never went back for 34 years. That was my first time back in Libya since I was six years, seven years old. So. Well, when was the last time you were back? Uh, the first time, well, when we left Libya, my dad was in prison prior to my leaving Libya for 40 days because of uh, some political thing. Um, when you graduate back then in the 60s and 70s, you were supposed to re- report to the government and work okay. for the government for a period of time. Well, he did, but unfortunately there was no job opening, so he went on to find other work with another oil company in the area. <laughs> but he got in trouble for supposedly not working um, and got in prison for 40 days and got questioned for 40 days um, until he finally was let go after they went on uh, a 7- to 10-day fast as a group. Um, him and the people that were imprisoned with him, they all were in the same kind of boat as he was. But, you know, after he got let go, he obviously went to work for a short period of time, then said, you know, I'm going on a business trip to Houston, and that was the last time we went back to Libya, and that was in 78. So Yeah, awesome. No reason. I, I, well, I guess, but you, you said you have been back, or you have not been back? I have not been back oh, okay. since 78. Okay. That, for, for some reason, I, I have a, a shortage of, of brain cells sometimes, Malik, and I thought you said you had just went back. Okay. <laughs> As you know that go well. Now, one thing that was one of the biggest reasons why these dictators were able to spread was the the uh, basically sh- social media. And yeah, one of the first media. things they do is try to shut down the internet as soon as like an uprising starts. How how much did Twitter, Facebook, and other social media play a part uh, in getting the word out in Libya? Well, uh, the amazing part of the Libyan people is that not only did they use the Facebook, and obviously they have a lot of well-educated people in Libya. We have a lot of uh, doctors, lawyers, um, you know, um, you know, computer technicians, and and just people that be that are highly educated. Mm-hmm. Obviously, not in Libya. They got their high school education, middle school, and elementary education in Libya, but they would go on to go get their uh, continuing education in Europe, in America, U.S., and all over Canada. Um, so. We were really fortunate to have people that understood how the Internet worked. And, you know, mm-hmm. just like they do in other parts of the world, when somebody shuts something down, there's always a way around it, and they figured out ways around it. And yeah. obviously word of mouth played a big part in that as well. Libya and Tripoli, in essence, was taken down Tripoli in three days because of the word of mouth from street to street. Mm-hmm. Cars were taken. Roads were blocked. People gave up cars so they could burn cars so they keep 
you know, the Gaddafi's regime from getting into certain communities. I had a Hyundai that I would have been more than happy to do that for. <laughs> so, yeah, don't think that that, that guy was any sacrifice, because there's a couple cars I wanted to do that too. All right, Malik? So that, that, yeah. that was probably, that probably just a very happy guy to set something on fire. So, so, you know, the whole process was really well organized, much more organized than people think here on, uh, you know, when you were watching CNN or MSNBC mm-hmm. or Fox. You know, a lot of a well, lot of times you heard that they were unorganized, but they were much more organized. They just, you know, the communications was hard because obviously everything was being monitored and looked at by Gaddafi. So talking on a cell phone sometimes was not an option. So. Yeah, and and how how big were the tentacles? Like ten percent of the people uh, in Libya were working for Gaddafi. You know what I mean? Because if yeah, you would think. Yeah, it was a good part. Uh, is a, a big part, but you know, it, it, a lot of it again is not of choice. Um, you know, sometimes you were forced into a situation, or your family was threatened, or you were threatened, or your children were threatened, and you know, you had no choice but to do as they say. But for the most part, many of the people that did work for Gaddafi had no part in the bad dealings that they were growing on. Mm-hmm. These were done by a small, minute amount, and those those small, minute. You see, the, the Libya. People know people. When you walk into, let's say, Misrata, which is one of the cities we went to to help out on Libyan hearts, uh-huh. when you walk into a city, you could walk to any person, ask a family name, and they would take you straight to their house. Okay. So okay. people know people, and people knew exactly what was going on, regardless of what was trying to be hidden. People knew what, what family and what person did what. All right. So what needs to be done now? Uh, right now, it mm-hmm. needs to be patience. We need to help out in, 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 in regards to uh, really education, uh, and, and not education at the highest levels. It's education, let's say if you go into a hospital in Tripoli or you go into a hospital in Mastrata, th- there's a lot of doctors, okay. high-level, well-educated doctors, but their training and the equipment at times is, you know, dated, okay. 70s. But the training is also dated at times. So what they need is training for the technicians, a person taking blood work, person who's doing right, um X-rays, uh, you know, uh, CAT scans. Those people need to be trained and helped. The nurses, the technicians, let's say in the hospital. And it goes across the board. Wherever we went, it seemed like in Libya, it wasn't the high-level, well-educated people that needed the help. It was them having a core of people, a team, just like if I was on a soccer team. The star athlete is the star athlete, but he's only going to be as good as the people around him. Uh-huh. So all those, all those people need to be trained to be able to help you know, achieve their goals, achieve what they need to do to be able to do the work, be it in the hospital or in a business office or even in telecommunications. I'll give you an example. My cousin, Zassim, he's, he's a really well-educated person who's traveled all throughout Europe, but he's been put in charge of having to deal with revamping the whole telecommunications system in, in, um, in Libya. Uh, and, and it was wow. being at one time being done by a French company. Well, the French people that he had around him, the four or five managers around him all left. So he's by himself having to do this all by himself. Okay, so how, how can our listeners help? Where do they have to go? What do they have to do to help? Mount? They can go to LibyanHearts.org, mm-hmm. okay? And mm-hmm. there's all kinds of things they can do, even a support, be it Facebook, if they would like to donate to the cause of Libyan Hearts. We obviously are right now in the process of going. We just did a pilot program, and we are going in the process of, of going on to you know, again, send more doctors. We're hoping to be able to send doctors on a, you know, three, four-week schedule 
where we go in and help certain hospitals with their needs. Um, you know, and they can help with that. We also have a landmine issue in, 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 in Libya that we also worked on as we were there in Masrata. Um, but anything that can help, if they want to provide service, if they have uh, contacts that we can use to be able to provide more opportunities for education, um, anything that can be helpful to, you know, the cause of helping Libya would be greatly appreciated. So uh, LibyanHearts.org. And by the way, I have a couple X's that I would like to help you with that landmine issue, Malik. Okay. Okay, I'll That's send great. them over I there. Was fortunate. I was fortunate to have uh, my neighbor who's next door to me is an ex-Navy SEAL, graduated number one in the EOD specialist program uh, in 1994. So he went with us, and he did a lot of great work with the wow. well, he, military people. So He probably knows one of my guys, Eddie Valdez, yeah. one of the top Navy SEALs in the world. Honestly, like yeah. one of the top Navy SEALs in the world. So that, that's awesome. Malik, I really do appreciate you coming on. So LibyanHearts.org to find out information on that. And also go to Facebook and go to Libyan Hearts and like it. And uh, and you can stay aware of what's going on over there. I really appreciate it, Malik. You know, it's, it's one thing for somebody to say they want to help. It's one person to actually help. I like people who do stuff and not sit on their butt and, and think about how great. You know, a little bit of best, you know, best intentions you know, it's not as good as actually doing stuff. So I really appreciate it, Malik, and thanks for coming on no, there today. No problem. And I just want to give a shout-out to all my Lone Star kids. Or I work for the Lone Star Soccer Club, and it's National Signing Day. We have over 100 kids going on to play at the collegiate level, and we wish them all the best and, and congratulate them on a great career at the Lone Star Soccer Club. Yeah, congratulations, kids, seriously. And, and best of luck on your, at the next level. Okay. All right, thanks a lot, Malik. Take care. Uh, you too. Malik Ben Musa from uh, Libyan Heart. So it was good to talk to him. I guess I'm going to have to talk to him off air uh, eventually. Uh, you know, I gave a little tease about it, and I, I'm going to end the show with just two two really, really incredible stories. One of them is just that there's been another uh, – this isn't exactly flash mob, but what's been happening lately, people have been using Twitter, saying, hey, let's go to this particular um, store. Right at the same time, I'll go in and rob it. Well, it happened again, this time in Syracuse, New York. This this poor Vietnamese uh, clerk has a little store. Next thing you know, nine people bum-rush the store, take $38,000 worth of groceries off the shelves and got out without anybody getting caught. $38,000 worth of groceries. I don't. That would feed me for like two years, I think. Unless, of course, well, unless there was a lot of Jack Daniels in that. That would be a total different thing. So... Social media, not always the best thing. So, uh, I, I, I shouldn't, I didn't, I shouldn't have brought that one up because I do want to talk about this one a little bit more. This one we might end up talking about tomorrow if you don't mind because this one I want to think about a little bit. Uh, but House Republicans are trying to pass a bill and this measure is sponsored by Louisiana Republican Representative Charles Bostony. And, uh, what they're trying to do is they're worried about the abuse of electronic benefits transfer cards. They He's saying it must stop. And what they're trying to have is that if you are a welfare recipient, the account that the welfare money is sent into, those accounts will not allow withdrawal in basically any area that would be deemed, I guess, like uh, seedy. So liquor stores, strip clubs casinos. And you know what? I don't have any problem with this whatsoever. Now, there was an issue I, I got into on Facebook with one of my buddies saying that uh, he was happy that in Oklahoma they were saying you they were going to now have drug tests if you were going to receive welfare benefits. I said, you know, that's that's not bad. 
somebody else started talking about all of a sudden next you know they were calling me racist. I, I got called racist because I thought it was a good idea and I and I said it kept the saying it was a good idea even though that 60% of people on welfare are are white. Uh well this one I, I I agree with it. If you are going to receive money from the government, you shouldn't have the access to gamble it, buy liquor with it. Or put it down or get out a thousand singles and put it down some girl named Epiphany's G-string. I'm 100% for this. So I do want to get more of this. So if you have a problem with this, if you have an issue with this, contact. Uh, you can go on uh, Two Guys in a Mic on Facebook. Two Guys in a Mic, number Two Guys in a Mic. Or just go to uh, Joel Orwanski on the Facebook page. So if you think I'm being racist or insensitive or anything like that, no. I, uh, You know what? There's a reason why these people are getting welfare is to take care of their kids. Pay mortgages, pay their phone bills, feed them. It's not supposed to so they got, get a couple 40s and put G-strings or dollars on people's G-string. Not any good. Or try to ride at $20 a hand. You know, absolutely asinine. So um, we will be talking about that tomorrow. But And we're also going to have Don Cress on tomorrow. And we're going to have uh, uh, Aaron Dwyer of MyMVPs.com on. And other than that, I just want to thank David Olson for having a phenomenal show. And, of course, I want to thank... Uh, my good friend Malik Ben Musa. We shouldn't wait another 15 years, Malik, and I really appreciate what you're doing over there in Libya, and I meant it. Be a doer. Don't be a guy sitting on the couch doing nothing. This is Joel Rodwanski, the coach. We'll be back in two days. David Olson, thank you very much. Two guys in the mic. Spread the truth and pass the gas.